Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. So today, my guest on the Agents of Innovation podcast is Bart Herbison. Uh, he's a native of Paris, Tennessee, coming to us today, I believe, from Nashville, right, Bart? That's correct. Well, Bart is the uh, executive director of the Nashville Songwriters Association International, the world's largest not-for-profit songwriter trade organization and advocacy group dedicated to the songwriting profession. Uh, Bart, I know in 2018, uh, you received two prestigious national honors for your songwriter advocacy work. Uh, You received the Industry Legacy Award from the National Music Publishers Association and the IP Champions Award from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Global Innovation Policy Center. And I know you also serve on the board of the directors of the Mechanical Licensing Collective. So, Bart, uh, once again, welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thank you. Honored to be asked. Uh, by the way, I love your logo up here. That's amazing. So, Thank you. And of course, you know, um, this is the Agents of Innovation podcast, but I uh, started a, a company, which you see the name behind me, Fearless Journeys. Um, which we basically try to help people, uh, you know, build an entrepreneurial mindset, right. and we do that by connecting them with a lot of featured innovators. So, yeah, so I'm the founder and CEO of Fearless Journeys. Launched it actually exactly a year ago, pretty much from the time we're talking. And um, the Agents of Innovation podcast, though, I launched a little over seven years ago now. So this is now uh, episode one twelve, believe it or not. And just wow, I to wanted to be the us. last one. My favorite number is one. Can we make this one eleven? Just throw out number thirteen. <laughs> all right, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. Well, uh, Bart, you've had a wonderful career in a few different fields, and um, I know that you made your way to the famous Music Row where you're sitting right now. Uh, and uh, in 1997, but I do know that um, as, as with many of my guests, I like to actually ask you, uh, what was your first job in life? It could be anything like including something you've done as a kid. Sure. Um, and once you identify that job, uh, is there so- anything you learned from it that, you, that still sticks with you today? Well, all of my jobs kind of segued. I, I never looked for a job, a door opened when I had the job. So my very first job, I was 13. My father was a house painter, and I would often tell people, I'm from Paris. They go, really? I went, yeah, my father's a painter there. And later on, I go, house painter in Paris, Tennessee. <laughs> we do have a little mini Eiffel Tower there. You should Google Paris, Tennessee, and you'll see this great little Eiffel Tower. But his specialty was high stuff, bridges, church steeples, that they painted and sandblasted. And unless you are tarring roofs or suckering tobacco, <laughs> the old-fashioned way. There's no nastier job. And I love my late father, but you know, my brother ended up having a career with him, but that wasn't me. I was the oldest son of an oldest son, and we were constantly back and forth. And one day, we're painting a high church steeple in my little hometown, hometown of Paris, Tennessee. And I moved the ladder and a big drama ensued. And and so another guy in my high school was working at the local radio station, WTPR. We treat people right. His name was Mickey Mooney. And I thought, well, if Mickey Mooney can do it, I can do it. So I walked into the radio station with hair down to here, all matted with sand and white paint. And, and the short version is I had to go get a license and some things in, that day, in those days, but they gave me a job. So I was a kid DJ and became the news director of that station at some point and some other local stations was working for the Tennessee radio network, the Nashville banner. I was their West Tennessee correspondent and all of that segued into a job with the future governor of Tennessee. He was the state representative at the time I was involved in that campaign covering it. And he won and asked me to come to Nashville. And I did. And then a couple of years into that, I went to Washington worked for the U.S. congressman from Nashville, and he offered me a job being his press secretary, and I said, I'll do it if I can do the music issues, because, Francisco, when I was four years old, my late uncle Billy Pullen called me into his den and played me a bunch of Elvis records. The first one was That's When Your Heartaches Begin, and I was hooked from that moment on. My whole family is creative musically, not me, but 
since that first job as a DJ, I've managed to stay around it. I grew up with a famous songwriter. So the congressman was Bob Clement. And I said, Bob, I, I just can't do it if you're not going to offer me the music position. So a few weeks later, some, some things changed and he offered me the job. I took it. My very first week on that job doing the music issues in SAI, this organization where we sit today, the Nashville Songwriters Association International, had an appointment with me. And they must have talked about how horrible the new guy in Clement's office was because all I kept going was, y'all do what? You represent <laughs> songwriters? And I actually said a prayer that day. Lord, let that be my next job and my last job. Ten years later, it was, and that was 25 years ago. So that's my path to NSAI. That's amazing. Well, you know, uh, as Garth Brooks says, there are sometimes there are unanswered prayers, but it sounds like <laughs> you got your prayer answered. I sure uh, did. Yeah, well, that's very nice to uh, to be able to do something you're passionate about. And that it's also kind of interesting because it sounds like before you worked uh, for that member of Congress, you probably didn't even know this organization or something like it existed. Um, I had heard of it. I was fortunate enough when I worked for the governor of Tennessee to meet uh, a tiny lady that was 50 times her size. And I'll tell you one thing, you better. And their name was Maggie Cavender. And I knew she ran the Nashville Songwriters Association. I, I met her at a tour at a inaugural event, a tourism slash inaugural thing, along with a, another tiny, tiny woman. They both probably weighed 90 pounds, dripping wet, named Mary John Wilkin, who I found out later was one of the founding members of this association and somebody I love to this day. She passed a few years ago and probably never heard of her. But have you heard of One Day at a Time, Sweet Jesus, the alcoholic anthem? She wrote that. She wrote The Long Black Veil. She wrote so many unbelievable songs. So you, um, when did you get that job, for the first job, I guess, in, in, in politics with the governor? Was that? Uh, that would have been 1986. Okay, so sometime in your early 20s, something like that? I would have been 29 years old. 29 years old. Okay. And what did you do? To, uh, what was your uh, educational path and and what did you do for work up leading up to that point? High school. And I just <laughs> I had one semester of college and the local radio station offered me, made me an offer I could not refuse. And I took it, never looked back. I'm not suggesting that because it's a different time and a different era. But I gravitated into news basically for the money because it was a higher paying position. And I became news director of that station, of a group of stations, a stringer for the Tennessee Radio Network the ABC TV affiliate there in West Tennessee, and most importantly for the Nashville Banner, back when you had a morning paper, an afternoon paper. And that's probably really what helped launch me into that job with the governor. You know, it's interesting. I've had, like I said, uh, 111 guests up to this point, <laughs> and uh, you being the 112th, I guess, episode. You wouldn't believe how many times I've actually had, when I asked people what their first job was, how many people said they had a paper route? <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and I don't have a lot of people that are that are too old that have been around too long, right? But to hear that also that there was a morning paper and an evening paper mm -hmm. in the day and age today when a physical paper isn't even arriving on uh, most people's doorsteps anymore. It's it's quite remarkable how things change quickly. Um, by the way, also, I had two other jobs. Oh, have you ever hauled hay? I have never hauled hay. You know what that is? Yes. So they bale the hay. I weighed 95 pounds dripping wet. You've got to throw it up on a truck. I'd have to run. I hauled hay for one day. Part two, have you ever suckered tobacco? Where you get in the tobacco field in August and pull the suckers off the plant. I did that for four hours. You know why I did the first one for one day and the second one for only four hours? Because I was that? smart. <laughs> That's <laughs> brutal, man. And it, it really, I think back on those days when I get, you know, like we all do a little whiny or a little all into myself and think, dude, and, and that's where I come from, came from a very rural community with not a lot of economic opportunities. So I appreciate that town. I appreciate what it gave me. And I appreciate, and we did work hard. We did a lot of different things, but my first job job was painting and sandblasting. That's amazing. Well, I, I don't think I've had, Son, I think that's Herbis, first. Yeah. yeah. J.B. Herbison and Sons painting and sandblasting. Oh, very nice. Well, um, so moving moving forward from there, I know uh, you mentioned the transition there where you learned about 
the learned a little more about, I guess, the National Songwriters mm-hmm. Association International uh, said your prayer. Uh, somehow, somehow an opportunity. Uh, how did you did you did you become the executive director right away or did you? Um, did 10 you years later, through? it was 10 years later. Wow. So the job came up and there's only been four executive directors in our 55 year history. And one was here so briefly, it just didn't work out. There really have been three in 55 years. And so I applied for the job in 1997, along with 85 others. And there was a lady named Dottie Moore that also worked for the congressman that knew me. We worked together. We were colleagues. But she was a songwriter and she was on this board of directors. I don't sit here without thanking Dottie Moore. She was a big promoter and, you know, they wanted advocacy. And and, uh, it's just it was a lot of my job is raising money media and marketing and advocacy. And I'd had background in all those. So they hired me and 25 years later, the, the jury's still out. <laughs> it can still go either <laughs> way. No, it's been a really lovely symbiotic relationship for me and the songwriters we serve. So can you tell um, the audience here a little bit more about the National Nashville Songwriters sure. Association International? And I noticed it's got a very local name, Nashville, and then it ends with the international. So that's interesting. Sore too. spot, but we'll talk about that, too. <laughs> so um, we go back to 19 to 1967, and there were literally 80 songwriters in the entire town. That's it. I anticipate, I, I anticipate the wrong word. I think there's probably about 80,000 here who have wow. made it or are trying to make it. So there were 80. And we were the idea of Eddie Miller. If you're a country music historian, you may remember the great hit, Please Release Me, Let Me Go. To waste our lives would be a sin. Release me and let me love again. And that was Eddie Miller. And Eddie convinced 41 others to form this association for songwriters. And nobody wanted to see the songwriters organized within the industry. It just, they didn't want to see it. Because what that meant is a redivision of the dollar. But Eddie was persistent and and they were so smart. And I want to take a minute on this, Francisco, because the first thing they did was pick the right issue. They just wanted the public to know that the artist didn't always write the songs. And back then in country music, very rarely. And so in order to do that, our first issue was to get the name on the records. It happened sometimes, but not always. And it took four years. And it took four years to get the publishers to get the label copy over there in time. Now, from the time a song's written to when you hear it, it can be years. Back then, it could be days. And they agreed to do that. In 1971, every major American label and global label agreed to put as a matter of practice, the songwriter's name underneath the artist. Now, the font was about that big, but it was still a great victory for us. And what it did, Francisco, it let those writers who formed us know that if you were persistent, businesslike, you could make changes. We were also lucky that there were some pop writers. Felice and Budlo Bryant were part of this, who were writing everything for the Everly Brothers, Liz and Casey Anderson had been headquartered in Bakersfield. They were having some pop success. So were others. Christofferson was one of our original members. And it kind of became the organization that, that took. That was 55 years ago. They were very smart in the way we did it. So what do we do now? We do advocacy. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth is advocacy. But we do a lot of other things. We have the world's largest songwriters festival, late March, early April, every year, Tin Pan South, that pays homage to Tin Pan Alley, where really the profession of American songwriting grew. Um, And we do 100 shows in five nights with 400 songwriters in the round. Wow. Four songwriters sitting in the round, swapping songs and stories, which was a format created and popularized by the world famous Bluebird Cafe which we own. Erica Wallam Nichols is the general manager, but we also oversee that. We have a big award show. We, if it's about songwriters in this town and Nashville's a songwriter town, it sort of starts and ends with NSAI and the Bluebird. And we do a lot of things, but the core mission is advocacy, which I assume you'll get into some of those specifics later. Yeah. So I understand you have a membership of uh, nearly 5,000. And by the way, by the way, 
the I, NSAI, National yeah. Songwriters Association International. It was a good idea at the time back in the 80s that we formed some international chapters, you know, but we're an advocacy group in America. So about seven or eight years ago, we decided after some reluctance to change the name. And when I realized that was going to cost me upwards of about three or $400,000 to undo all the trademarks we own and everything, we're now the Nashville Songwriters Association. (laughs) (laughs) We keep the eye and look, we pay homage to it, but it's a, it's a word full. And I personally don't believe it accurately reflects what we do. Having said that, any legislative trend we start here, like we have done recently, does go global. So we'll just say the I stands for that. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a good uh, description. And um, so, so as I was saying, I think uh, your membership um, has about you have about five thousand or so. Well, it took a significant dip during COVID, but it's coming back. So, but yeah, that's typically we're at around five thousand members. And and how many chapters? Right now we're at eighty. 80 chapters. So I like you mentioned uh, while you represent songwriters. Um, I also understand there's a, you know, and you mentioned an advocacy role. So this also means governments involved or, or at least uh, advocating with people in government are involved uh, with part of the work you do uh, in the national legislative arena. Um, so can you kind of go through a little bit about maybe some of your, I know most recently uh, there was the adoption of the Music Modernization Act in 2018. Maybe go through some of the I guess you could say legislative wins sure. or things we'll that you've advocated that. We'll for. We'll start with yeah. that. So bear with me, audience, because this is late. <laughs> Most people don't realize when you hear a song, there's two copyrights. There's the song the songwriter writes called the musical work or the underlying work, which is under the most onerous government restrictions of anything we have ever seen. And I'll go through some of those. We, our rates are set by the government. Actually, let me talk about the second income stream, the second um, copyright. That's the record. So when you write a song, we file it. We own the copyright, no matter who records it, if you're the songwriter that wrote it. When you make the record of it, it's a completely separate copyright under very little government control. And that goes back to the fir- very first act that Congress You know, Edison recorded sound, and in 1909, the American Congress realized we got to change the laws. We're operating under some 1600 English version, and they they literally were some Queen Anne version that dealt mostly with sheet music. And we lost some fights then. You know, three things terrible happened to us. Rates set by the government under a crazy standard of evidence. Back then, it said, "Let's, let's pretend that this songwriter over here is named Joe. Joe over here can only be paid so little, Francisco, that the purchaser of a mechanical player piano roll won't notice a price increase. Hmm. What did that mean in 1909? It meant why Edison was selling these cylinders for six bucks. We got a penny, one penny, divided by all the writers and publishers. So maybe a quarter of a cent, a sixth of a cent. And the next most onerous condition put on us, it's compulsory. We don't get to appeal it, don't get any say-so in it, and anybody that wants to record that song after we let somebody record it the first time gets to do it as long as they pay us that little bitty amount of money. So we've been fighting to get out from under that ever since. The Music Modernization Act took some really big leaps forward. It now tells the judges that instead of how little you can pay a songwriter, you need to approximate what the marketplace would pay them. You know, we want to look at what record labels make because since they're in the free market, they've always made more than us. It was literally illegal for some of the judges that set certain royalties to even examine that, to take a look at it. What's more relevant? That's the thing they should be looking at. Now they're required to look at it. It created a new agency that deals with one of our royalty streams. And that new agency, we were able to force the streaming services to pay for it. Why should we take 12, 15 cents out of every dollar 
for somebody else trying to distribute our music. We've got representation on the board, which songwriters have never had. And I could go on and on. It was a dramatic step forward, Francisco, but it has not solved all of our problems. And you're going to hear some news soon in a few weeks where we will um, take another leap forward using some of, some of that plateau where we last started. So, Yeah, that's interesting. It's funny. When you were first talking about, I guess, um, what is the mechanical device that you said Edison used? Player piano. Well, Edison used, uh, or he used a wax cylinder. But the two royalties are this. There's a performance royalty songwriters receive, wherever it's performed. The live venue was the only place back then. But today, television, streaming, broadcast radio. Then a sales royalty, if you sold that wax cylinder later on a 78 RPM record or an album or a 45 or a cassette or a reel or an 8-track or a CD, those are mechanical royalties. And those rates are a little higher for songwriters under this idea. In the early days when these laws were set, what, what's your favorite song ever, Francisco? Just give me a popular favorite song. song ever. Just give me well, a popular let's, song. Let's go with Love Me Tender by Elvis. By Elvis. So if you're listening to Love Me Tender, I think Lieber and Stola wrote that. You know, you will. Um, I'm not sure about that. Right. I got to look. I can't get an Elvis song <laughs> wrong. But they, um, they would get very tiny royalties when it was performed. But performed a million times, they add up. But they got larger royalties when it was sold because the idea is if you're listening to the radio back then, you can request Love Me Tender, Francisco, but you may have listened to the radio for two or three weeks before you ever hear it. If you mm -hmm. buy the record, you can play it over and over and over and over. So in the streaming world, there's so, those models remain distinct. If it's internet radio only and you don't control it, the songwriter gets only a performance royalty. But if it's subscription music where you can build your own playlist and hear it anytime you want to, we get the performance and the mechanical royalty. Ah, interesting. With that. And by uh, the way, that was codified under the Music Modernization Act because we had a couple of streaming services saying we're not going to do that. And then like, well, you are. And they did. So would that incentivize or encourage artists to build playlists or be part of playlists on Spotify, for example? Is that... No, I mean, and let's separate the songwriter from the artist, because a lot of songwriters aren't the artist. Okay. And the only income they get are those royalty streams or something called sync money when their music is used in film or television in a video medium, which is the only place we get to negotiate. And by the way, we've been negotiating that since Talking Pictures. We get half, the labels get half. Now, when streaming started, the labels got 1,700%, seven times what we did. We've narrowed that down some, but we think it should be equal, and that would be our goal someday. So um, what you mentioned there was a really important distinction that even, you know, I failed to grasp for a second, uh, making sure that we distinguish between the songwriter, that's the people you represent, and the artist. Sometimes they're the same person, but a lot of times they're not. So, so when the song is played, you know... Um, the songwriter is going to get paid, but let's let's say it's uh, red. So Taylor Swift gets paid tiny amount of money as the songwriter and a lot more money as the artist. Plus, Taylor gets something we don't merch, product endorsements, ticket sales. We don't get any of that. We get those royalties. And, you know, I wish we could recalibrate and start this thing over in 1909 because we it would have been a hell of a lot easier to start something new and fair than to scratch and claw. Because what we're doing every time we made a game, we've had to kind of redivide the dollar here. And that's tough because Congress isn't going to pass anything without unanimous agreement. And the hardest part for us to get there is agreement within our own industry, Francis. Yeah. But it's changed a lot. There's a guy named Mitch Glazier that runs the Recording Industry Association of America. He and his colleague, Michelle Ballantyne and Morna, they've done a really good job of, because of, a lot of these companies are vertically integrated. You know, there's a publishing arm and a label arm to kind of not oppose these songwriter efforts. And you'll hear that pretty soon in one of the things we're going to announce. It used to be very adversarial occasionally it gets that way but we kind of realize we all live and die by the same <laughs> the same three and a half minutes over and over and over again 
Yeah. So, uh, Bart, the um, when it comes to copyright laws and innovation, there are some on the side of innovation. Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to say this outside of necessarily the scope of songwriting. Let's just talk mm -hmm. broader copyright laws for all sorts of inventions and everything. There are some on the side of innovation, which could be distinguished from invention, um, who say that, you know, copyright laws in some ways are a bit taxing on the entrepreneur and particularly on new innovations. And, you know, that maybe maybe the copyright laws are a little too stringent and things like that. Um, but why why are copyright laws important for creators such as songwriters? What would the person who would say that, what would their occupation be? Give me what an would their occupation? Yeah, just well, give me an example. Well, for example, I'm thinking of somebody like the author of a book called How Innovation Works, like Matt Ridley. Okay. Obviously, well, Matt let's Ridley... see if Matt will give up the copyright on his book. Yeah, anyway. Right, exactly. So look, there was a famous trial, Eldred versus Ashcroft, back under the, the first Bush administration, that wanted to determine whether the life, which now in music, it's the life of the author, when the last songwriter dies, plus another 70 years. And did the founders really intend that? So the famous Supreme Court case was Eldred versus Ashcroft. Welcome to my world. You're going to get an inside look at how the sausage is made. That's Do you what know, we're here for. Here's a trivia <laughs> question. There were two white guys in the disco era. Can you name them? There were two white guys in what? The disco era artist oh the disco era um i don't know i don't kc kc and the sunshine band <laughs> okay and this guy that never intended to be named peter mccann do you remember the song do you want to make love <laughs> or do you just want to fool around that was peter and so they put peter out on tour during the disco era and he went on to write right time of the night for jennifer warrens became a great american songwriter but he's a constitutional scholar so about the time this trial started, I hadn't seen Peter in about a year. And I run into him one day. I'm like, what have you been doing? I've been reading James Madison's diaries. I said, of course you are, Peter. And like, <laughs> and I'm in volume number 81 of 96 and blah, blah, blah. And the Magna Carta, I'm like, let's talk about it later. So this case comes up. And I'll tell you why copyrights are important. Because the founding fathers knew that the promise of this nation was its ideas. And they so believed that they were all authors and inventors that George Washington, Madison, Jefferson, they all, Franklin, they specifically asked James Madison to write Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution that says, and in order to promote progress in science and the useful arts, Congress, and I'm paraphrasing, I always get this wrong, may grant for a limited time to authors and inventors because they knew that was the promise of this nation. And it always has been. Our ideas, our inventions, our culture have led the way for nearly 250 years. And so they asked Madison to write it because they all admired his respect for the protection of creative works. So Peter saying, I'm reading James Madison's diaries. I said, get in there, Peter. So in, in the oral arguments on this case, because we'd already filed the written arguments, we can show what he intended. He found multiple, multiple, multiple references where Madison intended for these diaries to be published for my family's remuneration upon my death. Hmm. So clearly he intended for the copyright to last beyond the life of the author. I think it should be in perpetuity. How does that stifle invention? Well, I don't think it does. And I think there is a cost to creativity. And I think we should respect that and gladly pay for it. We fight against these streaming companies, but if their $9.99 price was $14.99, we wouldn't be having any of these arguments. And it's still a damn bargain for the American public. First CDI I ever bought was $19.99, you know, and I get the entire history of the recorded music of the world for 10 bucks a month. And I was at Taco Bell the other day and spent $14.99 for a modest lunch. You can afford the music. And so, so I go back to what Madison and the founders intended. I go back to what the Supreme Court decided that it is life of the author plus 70 years in terms of music copyrights. I know that patents and trademarks run out a little bit 
earlier. I think they should be longer. But we do have instruments like gratis licenses and things like that. If the Girl Scouts call and they're not going to monetize the copyright, there are ways to get to use it. There's fair use that most of these folks can employ if it's really, you know, something that is the fair use of the copyright. But I go back to James Madison and our founding fathers because it is still, it is still the promise of the United States of America is right here. We do it better than anybody else. Go anywhere in the world and see what country's music they are playing, whose movies they are watching, what books they are reading. No, that's totally true. And, you know, it's interesting because um, I don't know where Matt Ridley would stand on music copyrights and things like that. I know in that. In and that I don't book, know I'm Matt. So mad if I yeah. picked on you unfairly. <laughs> Same. I, I don't want to I don't want to <laughs> misrepresent him either. But what I would say is I remember in his book, one of the things he really emphasizes about innovation is that innovation is a process. And what he showed was, for example, when Edison invented the light bulb, about 20 something people around the world at the exact same time who weren't even in communication with one another, they weren't sharing any information. They invented the light bulb too, around the same time, the incandescent light bulb. Why Edison gets all the credit is he was really the innovator that brought it to the market that helped to be affordable and accessible. And probably filed the patent and he was obsessive about filing the patents, right? But one of the things Matt Ridley uh, emphasizes too is that sometimes with all these patent laws, the the great innovators get caught up in leaving their work on what they're doing to invent things and bring new innovations, and getting caught up in the whole you know legal system and the patents and the process and all that. And sometimes yeah. maybe they could have applied that there. But what yeah. I will say is in that same book when he talks about art, so one of the things he says is. The Wright brothers, if the Wright brothers would not have invented the airplane, that doesn't mean the airplane would not have been invented. Um, there was processes going on in the world that would have brought the airplane in some way, shape or form into invention. If somebody had invented Google, yeah. somebody else would have invented a great search engine. Maybe it wouldn't have been the exact same. It would have been called Google, all these things. But how he distinguishes those inventions from art is he says, if no, if if. If uh, Da Vinci would not have painted the Mona Lisa, no one else would have painted the Mona Lisa. That's a creative thing. You know, uh, the Beatles, their music, you know, if they didn't create some of those songs, no one else would have would have made them. That's something art is really much more distinguished from other right. kinds of invention because it's something we create in our own mind, in our in our own heart in, in some ways. It's our intellectual property. And look. I have no problem with reforming patent, trademark, copyright laws. We do that all the time. And I hear him on that. But again, the people that founded this greatest government, as dysfunctional as it is, is still the greatest ever invented. Our form of democracy is still the best ever. They valued the power of our thoughts. And they were right then and we're still right now. So in addition to helping, um, you know, with some of these copyright laws and other things like that, what else does the NSAI do for songwriters? And I imagine that the membership that you have of, you know, thousands of, of members are songwriters. We have two divisions. We have what we call the active division and they're great songwriters, but they're either trying to come up and figure out whether they want to be a professional, but for most of them, they're hobbyists and they've done it since high school. And they're really good. Maybe they perform locally. They record their own stuff and put it on the internet. But they have day jobs. And for them, we create networks. It's a family where we all speak the same language. Lots of opportunities about making your songs better, reviewing, critique, performances. It's, it's almost too much to count our programs and services for that division. For the professionals, it's advocacy. That's what we focus on for the professionals. And actually, we give them some things, but we ask of them. We ask them to go to Washington with us. We ask them to play the shows. We ask them to teach the programs. And they do it gladfully because we have been the most effective organization in American history to change, in a good way, that profession of songwriting. Well, that's great, Bart. Um, so some other cool things. Um, I understand that your headquarters, where you're sitting right now, um, is on Music Row, and I also understand it's it's the historic Music Mill studio that you all re acquired in 2005. Can you tell us a little bit about the history that occurred there? There's a guy, a guy, 
recording radio jingles in that era named Harold Shedd, S-H-E-D-D. And he, he says, well, I can make records. <laughs> okay. So he, he really doesn't have enough money, but he scrapes up, I think, I'm not so sure he didn't do a second mortgage on his house, but he scrapes up enough to build build a studio is the wrong room. He bought some cheap equipment, threw it together about a half mile from where I'm sitting on the roundabout over here and called it the music mill and signs this bar band he'd seen. They were older by music standards and they were playing those honky tonks on a Southern circuit. Their name was Young Country and they record an album and he takes it around to the labels and they laughed at him like, and some of them were, were insulted because it wasn't country. It certainly wasn't the country of that era. And they were mad because they thought he didn't honor the genre. They thought it was too pop. And it was rejected. So the band's ready to quit and take that advance and go home. He goes, no, wait a minute, boys. I got everything on the line here. One thing I do know, it's about songs in this town. And here's another pile of great songs. They did a second album. And a lot of the labels wouldn't even meet with him. And the few that did went, what did you not hear about this the first time? So there's only two or three songs left. And, you know, they've given up. Harold goes, look, let's just record these songs. So when I go broke, I'll at least know we gave it the college try. And they record a couple of them. And as happens in our industry, RCA uh, New York was not happy with Nashville. And they come in and fire everybody. And they bring, I think he was 27 years old, a kid from the New York city office who has discovered all these great pop acts named Joe Galante. And there's a tape on his desk and he puts it in. It's this band. He's like, that's what I want to do. I'll, this is the direction I want to take country. And they go back and forth and he signs that group and they put on an album and he changes their name to Alabama, <laughs> the country music uh, group of the century. Wow. And so Harold builds this building in 1982, the music mill, fantastic here on Music Row. I'm sitting in what was Harold's office. <laughs> Sometime a few years later, well, what happens next is a lady in New York who's from Texas, but she's trying to make her way in New York. Here's Alabama on the radio. And she goes, I don't know what I was. If that's country, she puts five songs on a cassette and drives here, walks in the front door and plays them for Harold. And he loves them. And he says, I'm going to sign you to a writing deal. She goes, no, you're not. I'm recording these songs or nobody else gets them. And they go back and forth. So they finally make an agreement that Harold will produce these five sides on her. They'll shop it around. But if no record label bites, then she signs a writing deal and they can pitch them to others. So they do that. They take it to Galante because that's where the bread is buttered at the time. They have a great meeting and she leaves and he goes, how old is she, Harold? Because she was older and we didn't know until recently she was 47 years old, a 47 year old female breaking into country music on the biggest label there is. It had never happened. And her name was KT Austin. And all five of those singles charted in the top 20, their eighties ladies, five o'clock love and, and I argue there's no Reba, there's no Shania Twain without KT's success in empowered female songs. Next, Harold's on an airplane and some flight attendant walks up. And thank God it was a red eye from L.A. to New York. He left like 4 or 5 a.m. And she goes, I know this guy you need to sign, blah, blah, blah. And Harold's like looking up half asleep. And he goes, well, have him send me a tape. And he starts to write down his address. And she goes here and pulls it out of her pocket. And I said, thank God that Harold arrived about 10 o'clock Nashville time because he got in his car, came to the music mill and popped that tape in. And the first song was Should Have Been a Cowboy by Toby Keith. And he calls Toby and Toby had been treated poorly by the record industry in Nashville. I mean, it's a tough business, man. And, you know, put your ego in a sack because that's where you're going to leave with it. And he calls Toby and Toby's blah, 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 blank, blank, blank. And y'all blank, blank, blank. So if you really want to see me, I play every Wednesday night at Chastain's come down here tomorrow night. I was in Oklahoma city. Harold went and he signed Toby Keith to a record deal that night. Wow. And soon after that is Shania, Billy Ray, Aki Brakey was the biggest thing ever done out of this building. The Kentucky headhunters. 
and everybody that Harold touched in that era changed what got played on American radio. And I'm very honored to sit in this seat. The studio's still down there without the board. There was a tribute show to Harold down in a little town called Bremen, Georgia, a few years ago. I think it's about 10 years ago. And I, I went, and everybody came to what was a former Target store down there. They had folding chairs out for this performance. And I, I wouldn't have believed this if I hadn't seen it. So Randy and Teddy reunite. It's the first time the Alabamas played, any version of Alabamas played together in a decade. They were going to do one song, Mountain Music. The people went insane. It made a Springsteen or Taylor Swift concert look like a prayer meeting. I've never <laughs> seen anything like it. People were losing their minds. To such an extent, they did the song twice. They went back right into it, did like 20 minutes of mountain music. I'm standing right there on the lip of the stage taking pictures, and Toby grabs Randy, and he goes, turn around. Randy's kind of like, don't be grabbing on me. And he says, look at these people. You owe them another album. And I've got a record label. So Alabama and Friends came out. Two new songs on it, Harold Shedd produced, and they did some of all that work right here at the Music Mill. So it was wow, a that's amazing. full circle story. And we honor the history of this place because it's full of it. These walls literally have some creative magic. And I'm not, I don't mind telling you this. So we're looking for a building. It's 05, and somebody tells me the Music Mill's for sale. And I drive over here and the realtor and a guy that had helped Harold with the building um, named Paul said it's sold. I said to who? He goes, a Brazilian restaurant. I said, for how much? He wouldn't tell me. I said, what's Harold's number? He wouldn't give it to me. So I get the number and I call Harold over the weekend. And Harold gave me, he said the wrong thing. Harold said, so how you doing? He goes, I'm doing great. I feel great. I'm going to live to a hundred. I said, do you want to drive by the music mill for the next 30 years and see somebody serving enchiladas and tequila over there? <laughs> Here's what we got, Harold. And it was considerably less than he'd been offered. And I said, I'll make you one promise. We'll tell the story of what you did. I'll make you two promises. And creators will still work in this building. He had a partner. He checked with him over the weekend. He called me Monday morning and we closed a week or two later on the music mill. And we've been in here ever since. Well, that's fantastic. I also understand that uh, there was recently a documentary made about the history of the music mill and you were it, in it. Well, it was it was out a few years ago. It's not available anymore because we didn't renew the licenses on it, but it's a fantastic movie and I may renew those licenses and it tells the whole story of this place and and some of those people play. My favorite two scenes in the movie is I'm on his podcast, so tell him that. <laughs> so um it's when some of the writers just showed up all down the lobby and there was a crowd down there and we put guitars in their hands and filmed them. And it was like the energy that happened back then. And then I was interviewing Randy and it, it wasn't going great. And I thought I kept trying different things to get Randy, you know, a little more engaged. And I'm not sure they had adequately prepped him for what he was doing. And finally I said, hold on a minute, Randy. And I went and grabbed a guitar and stuck it in his hand. And I said, play feel so right. Cause that's the song that Harold produced that really paid for this building and everything changed. And if we do renew those licenses, wait till you see that scene. So uh, I also understand uh, uh, that you've been in some other films as well and that you were um, portrayed in the 2017 film Wheeler. Uh, well, I play myself in Wheeler and you should watch that. I think it's, a you know, I learned a lot about the movie industry. It's a lot about the music like the music industry and that great products are made. The world doesn't always see them, but Wheeler W H E E L E R is the story of an older country songwriter artist named Wheeler Bryson. And his father dies down in Kaufman, Texas. And he's got this moment, whether is it too late or do I at least go stick my toe in the water and see if it's too late and things happen. A lot of things happen. And I love that movie. I'm proud of it. I'm proud I'm in it. I'm friends with the Dorf family. And, and Stephen Dorf deserved an Oscar. Stephen's wearing prosthetic makeup. He's wearing a sort of a mask in this thing. And we went, we did two shows live at the Bluebird. Nobody had any damn idea who it was. They were like, Wheeler, who's this Bryson guy? Did an interview on WSM. Marcia did not know. We went into the studio with some guys he knew. None of them knew it was Wheeler. And so I still get a lot of emails 
about some of the things that happened to the character. Like, we're glad this happened or sorry this happened. I went, you know, it's a mockumentary. <laughs> and they're like, what? People think it's real. And I'm proud of that, too. And, and yeah. there's another part. We didn't have a script. We had a storyline like Curb Your Enthusiasm, we knew what was going to happen in the scene, but there was no script. And I think that lent a lot of spontaneity to it. So the scenes I'm in were scenes like we would recreate every day and what we do over here. We showed what so, we do. So it's not it's not based on a real story. It's a, it's a mockumentary, but you're playing the real uh, Bart Herbison, who's representing the Nashville Songwriters Association. NSAI is pretty central in it, and so is the Bluebird Cafe, yeah. which we own. So Okay. Uh, well, that's cool. Well, uh, Bart, and the by the way, time... his dad is one of the most famous American composers. I'll really tell you the story. Here's again okay. how it gets made. His name's Steve Dorf. And look him up. He's unbelievable. Everything from that great song, Cross Your Heart, that George Strait plays in the very last scene of Pure Country to, to a lot of the Jerry Reed stuff. He, he is a, an amazing composer. And his brother, Andrew was having a lot of songwriter success after struggling for years. He, I think, is having his third or fourth number one. So we've got a mutual friend named Bobby Tomlin. That's how I met the Dwarfs to begin with. And Bobby comes in. Bobby's the most polite person I've ever known. And I'm in a meeting here one day, and he bounds right through my office, slams the CD in, and jacks it up and turns around. I'm like, Bobby, there's people in here. We're in a meeting. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, man. So they leave, and he turns up. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. He... I got that wrong. That's the second part. He comes up here and goes, I'm going out to write with Dorf. They're going to make a movie about a songwriter. Do you want to be involved? I said, I don't think so. Let's see how it goes. And I said, he goes, but I'm writing with Dorf. I said, you write with Dorf all the time. He went, Stephen, the actor. He said, yeah, I went, he writes. He goes, yeah. And I said, well, I'm not sure I want to be involved in that because I'm not sure how the father and brother are going to take it. So Christmas happens. Bobby comes in. That's when he crashes this meeting in my office, jams in a CD and plays a song. So the people leave and I'm like, I'm kind of ticked off like Bobby and he, the song keeps playing. I'm like, what is that? And he goes, wrote it with Dorf. I went, Dorf wrote this. He goes, yeah. I said, who's singing it? He goes, Dorf. I said, who's playing piano? He goes, Dorf. I said, play me another one. Plays me another one. I said, play me another one. Before the third one ends, I went, hell yes, I'm in. And so they had the storyline, but what they didn't have was how this character would get connected for some of the things that happened next. And it's what we do. And that's how NSAI got involved. We wrote some of the scenes. And I, I don't know that I've ever been prouder of anything than that movie, Wheeler. I'd That's love awesome. for you to watch it, Francisco, and tell me. I will definitely watch it. Well, hopefully it, I can find it's it. It's free uh, on Amazon Prime. Just type in oh. Wheeler. If you've got Amazon, it's free. And while I'm promoting, so is Bluebird, colon, the movie. They're both free on Amazon Prime if you've got it. Great. I think, well, I also uh, know that you've been in a documentary called The Last Songwriter, released in 2018, and that you're um, you, there's an upcoming documentary called It All Begins with the Song, where you're the executive uh, producer I, I'm of that. An associate producer. That All the credit goes to Butch Spiritin with the Nashville Convention and Visitors Corporation, the tourism guy here in Nashville. And I'm equally proud of that. It is also available now on Amazon. Oh, it great. All begins with the song. Well, so, my, uh, my next and the last songwriter, so on Amazon. <laughs> the last songwriter, just type it in online. That was something we were working on. And it kind of became irrelevant because we started changing some of these laws. It's more about the problem. And it stars, you're going to fall in love with her, Jamie Floyd. And I think Jamie illustrates how hard it is for American songwriters. I won't spoiler alert, but I will spoiler alert. She's a waitress nominated for a Grammy and can't get off her shift to watch it. And that's how tough it is for American songwriters. Wow. And amazing. I'm proud of that movie too. So we got a couple more hopefully on the horizon too. So, well, that's great. So, you know, we, we heard about your time in, in government, uh, your move over to running the Nashville songwriters association where you're, you know, representing songwriters, uh, here in this country, mostly. Um, and also now you're, you're delving into some film to, to, to spread the word, I guess a little bit about you know what's going on right now. A friend of mine told me to say this. I have to tell you, okay. Mark Holliday told me this 
I'm between pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, so <laughs> that's the way to say it. You're between yeah, pictures. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, speaking of pictures and music, you know, the first time you and I talked, Bart, uh, you told I told you that I was a big Elvis fan. I, by the way, I've been drinking from my Elvis mug, if you haven't noticed. Um, and uh, and how did you respond to that? <laughs> well, first of all, over my right shoulder, you can't see it. Let's see if we can. Hold on. Bear with me. See that on the wall over there? I don't know yes. if you can see it. There's two sets of Elvis stamps Priscilla signed the night they were issued at Grayson. That's one of them. Wow. Really proud of that. I'm an Elvis freak. I grew up halfway between Nashville and Memphis. And so we get in a lot of arguments, Elvis fans do. And I always win because what's his logo? What's his logo? Mm-hmm. His, his, his image, his face? TCB with a lightning bolt, taking care of business mm. in a flash. And that is tattooed down my left shoulder. And I went a lot of who's the biggest Elvis fan. That's commitment, my friend. Yeah, I don't have an Elvis logo. Look, because I no. told you earlier, I was never forget it four, four and a half years old. And my uncle Billy Pullen played me. That's when your heartaches began. And I have never been the same human being since. And I knew as a kid, I'm doing something with that, with music. And I've never looked back. So I understand, uh, Bart, that... Um, so obviously Elvis recorded over 200 songs at the RCA Studio B right there in Nashville on Music Row. Where is that in relation to your office? Let's see. You see that window? Yeah. It's about 100 yards catty cornered left. It's literally across the street. I can throw a baseball and hit it. So, yeah, you're, you're just uh, 100 yards. You work every day 100 yards from where Elvis I don't recorded. think it's even that far. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can also, yeah, because a baseball, you know, that would be that would be a big. A big long throw, a hundred yards, but uh, yeah. So you're you're very close to where Elvis. So There's that one Elvis, building between us and Studio B. Yeah, you got that Elvis uh, synergy going on right there around the corner. So, um, you know, I mentioned before too with my company, Fearless Journeys. One of the things I'm doing is um, taking people on group trips. So we're planning a group trip right now for October. I hope we can come and visit you at the. Of course, uh, and I'm sorry that didn't work out last time. That damn COVID. So you know. Yeah. So we're we're um. Yeah, so that's fine. But we're uh, we're looking forward to being there. I'd also want to take the group to the RCA studios. I know that they've got uh, some tours there as well. But for those that might be listening right now and maybe they're thinking about coming to Nashville, whether they've been before or not, uh, can you tell us a little bit of like why should someone come visit Nashville and, and also while they're there visit Music Row? Well, Nashville is a dynamic city. It's important to the history and culture of the United States in so many ways. It was founded by James Robertson and Timothy de Monbrian, whose boats landed not far from me on the Cumberland River up here. It's a melting point for the United States. It's one of the few cities that has three interstates. We're within 600 miles of 80% of the commerce in the United States. So it's got the Tom Bigby Waterway, which nobody knows about nearby. So in addition to many things, it's a transportation and product movement hub here. But music, I would argue that every popular form of music in the world had a genesis in Tennessee. I'm not saying they were all invented here, but gospel music as we know it and folk music as we know it blended up in the hills of Appalachia, Virginia, and East Tennessee. Jimmy Rogers popularized it up in Bristol, Tennessee. You look at Memphis and you've got soul, Urban, R&B, and rock and pop all had its roots on Beale Street in Memphis and Elvis and before that, Furry Lewis, and you start naming it, Howlin' Wolf, all those, everybody that was going on, down, all the recording that was going on at Sun down there in the day. And that all kind of combined into country music here in Nashville. So it's a musical state. And, you know, there are historic things. If you can see a show at the Ryman Go, the acoustics are better than Carnegie Hall. It's an old wooden church that became the home of the Grand Ole Opry. You know, there's the Bluebird Cafe that we own. Try to get in. Good luck. Very limited seating there. I know someone. I know someone connected to the Bluebird. So <laughs> well, try we'll to get see. In. Even when they go on sale. So this may be useful. We don't have any tickets. The performers each get an allotment. And we can only get somebody a ticket that the performers don't. And sometimes that's the day before. What is that? How, how many people does that fit for an audience? 99. 99. Small. But that's wow. the beauty of it. It's so intimate. 
and the stories and the interaction with the songwriters, it's like a play. And if you talk in there, we go, and we don't have to do it. There's shush signs all over because it's the furthest away you are is nine feet from those songwriters in the round. It's very personal. Think of like if Springsteen were on Broadway, it's that kind of thing. It's very personal with the audience. And, you know, you should tour Music Row because of what happened over here. I mean, a whole lot of the world's popular music was recorded within a golf shot of me. We'll put it that way. So, wow, that's incredible. Well, you guys are definitely located where I think you need to be in terms of where all the songwriters are today, where they've been in the past, where a lot of the music was created. So it's really amazing. You know, um, on this podcast, uh, I mentioned if you see sort of my tagline, I interview entrepreneurs philanthropist and artist. And by artist, I mostly mean independent musician. So I've had a lot of them on over the years, many that actually most of them live in Nashville, to believe it or not. I mean, people like Tony Luca and Paul Fow and Steve Everett, who are wearing his shirt, Amy Gearhart's and uh, my friend Nick Gill. So, so many have been on and they live right there. Nashville, Andrew Leahy, um, great guys. But, uh, you know, when I, when I think about them and, and their stories, um, and, and I think about how difficult it is to have a career in music and, and the challenges. And these are some people who have made some success. That's why I'm, I've had them on the podcast. Um, obviously, they're not Taylor Swift level or something like that. But what would be your advice if we could have maybe uh, a final question here? So uh, your sort of best advice, everything you've seen in the music industry to maybe some aspiring young musicians. Understand. Songwriters. Yeah. Understand it's not about how great your song is. Your song better be good and you better be able to write them, whether we like what's going on in popular music now. It's about networking and opportunities. Think of it this way. The Tennessee Titans will have more new starters next year than people that get legitimate record deals. It's tough. There's only a handful. A lot of money goes behind that. So you have to learn the industry. And I'm going to give you a tip. This doesn't exist in Los Angeles or New York. One of our treasures is something called Music Row, not where I sit, not the geographic area, the publication. We have a free daily newspaper about this industry, and it'd be a really good start for you. What is that called again? MusicRow.com. Sherrod Robertson runs that. He, He should be heralded because it is what I read in the morning. It's what I read at night. It's free, and it will give you a head start and sort of an insight. You can do the music and people make these crazy decisions to move here and move their whole families here because they know a little bit about music. I say don't move to Nashville, date it. And it will tell you whether you need to make a different level of commitment or not. But it's the music industry. And people don't know about the industry. So they don't understand if you want a record deal in Nashville these days, whether it should be this way or not, you got to get a publishing deal first. They couldn't tell you what a publishing deal entails, and they've moved their whole families here. And we're uniquely equipped for that. We're the only company you'll ever talk to that never gets a piece of your money, nor would we take it unless you're successful and want to donate to the cause. Dues are 200 bucks a year, and we tell you all this. And there's thousands of hours on our video library, and you need to pay attention to it because it will chew you up and spit you out, even on the best days. And if you want to navigate it, you need to understand it. So that's my advice, Francisco. And well, that's a good song that you like doesn't necessarily mean it's commercially viable. And there's tricks and rules to that too. So, yeah, that's always the uh, dilemma of the creator, right? Uh, being true to what you want to create, but also the market that's available. Yeah, and and, and I reject this whole idea of selling out. You know, you can be you, you just got to be you in under four minutes. And the one thing that's tough to be you is certain topics that you used to could write about that just aren't commercially viable now until you've had two hit singles. Then you can put out whatever you want to. So we kind of coach you through all these things. There's not an artist or successful songwriter in Nashville that didn't come through these doors. Okay. So songwriters out there, aspiring songwriters, musicians, artists, you've heard it here. Go to NashvilleSongwriters.com. And by the way, all genres, not just country. Yeah, all genres. Uh, NashvilleSongwriters.com. And also the newsletter that you mentioned is at musicrow.com, right? Yeah, you'll thank me for it. 
So Bart, this has really been fantastic having you on. What a privilege. A lot of history that we've uncovered. We could probably sit here and talk to you. I know I could for hours. These are all famous lyrics that the writers yeah. have handwritten for me. Guess what? That oh, wow. one's in the corner by the light back there. I can't, I can't guess. That's long, cool woman in a black dress on a black dress. The great Roger. Oh, Cooper, Roger I, you know, it's funny because I was wondering, I was, I saw the little frame next to the black yeah. dress, but you're telling well, me the, the one black next dress to itself. that is maybe the most important one I own. It's one of the few, if not the only copy of he stop loving her today, which most people consider the greatest country song ever written signed by Bobby Braddock and the late Curly Putman. And I'm wow. very proud of that one in the corner over there. So, well, that's incredible. And, uh, you know, I hope to have the opportunity to, Someday see a, a performance at the Bluebird Cafe and the Ryman Auditorium. I'm definitely going to try to bring our group in October to the Ryman. Uh, we're looking to make sure, see who's uh, who's lining up. October's a little way away. Uh, who's lining up the week we're there. But also, um, maybe we'll look at the Bluebird Cafe and see if there's uh, one of 99 tickets available. <laughs> we'll <need laughs> I hope so. Few, so. So thank you so much, uh, Bart, for your time. Uh, thanks for being an agent of innovation and being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. <laughs>